0: The Diecast Movie
1: Podcast proudly presents the James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the DieCast Movie Podcast. And we are continuing the James Whale Retrospective Series, where we've been talking about the man, the work, and soon his legacy. Because after this episode, the wrap-up episode will be the roundtable, where we'll talk about his impact. But the final movie that we're going to be talking about is The Man in the Iron Mask from 1939. And I am privileged to be joined by the B-Movie cast co-host, Nick brown how you doing today nick
0: oh wow steve i uh, couldn't be better if i was twins let me just go ahead and say that and uh, i'll let you figure out what that means
1: i think anybody that's seen this film will know which one it means
0: <laughs> oh yeah there you go good call now it's uh i'm i am really happy to be here it's a pleasure to be back on the show um Excited to be talking about this uh, film today too. You know, it's a, and it's one that I wouldn't have thought of for James Whale actually. So I'm glad we're look, taking a look at it because it's a good movie. Holy cats!
1: Yeah, you know? it is a good movie, and that's one of the reasons I did this retrospective. Is because everybody always thinks of James Whale and just the horror, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, yeah, The Old Dark House. But we've discussed Showboat, a musical. We've discussed The Great Garrick, a comedy. We've discussed dramas um, like Journey's End, which was our first one. Waterloo Bridge, The Kiss Before the Mirror. And now we're ending with an action movie. And technically, you can argue that the Frankenstein movie and all those horror films, if you don't want to take them as horror, you can look into it as action dramas or adventure dramas. So you could argue that.
0: I could. I could see that. And, you know, this one, I feel like it's, you know, and the thing is the 1920s and 30s and, and even on into more modern, but not so much now, you had this whole epic swashbuckling era. And, yeah, this fits right in there. You know, this is like a, to me, this film is like a Captain Blood, for example. Love Captain Blood from about the same period. And, you know, this kind of period piece, swords and swashbuckling and all that, it's fun. You know, and it's I also never tire of the whole uh, of Dumas's stories of the three musketeers or the musketeers in general, actually, and I think. Uh, You know, so I th- actually think one of the versions of this film, because this is only one of many versions of this particular film to come out, but one of them, I believe, was called The Fifth Musketeer, and that was referring to Philip. So, I believe, but I digress.
1: And we know you never digress, Nick.
0: <laughs> never, never. I never met a rabbit hole I wouldn't go down, let's put it that way.
1: I, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> I think I've coined that phrase with you on your show and I say, Nick, I always go down every rabbit hole I see brown. So we'll we'll see how many rabbit holes listeners take a shot for every rabbit hole he goes down and we'll see how drunk you get by the time this is over.
0: (laughs) I refuse to accept any responsibility for people who die of alcohol poisoning during this podcast. That is my official disclaimer.
1: I never (laughs) said on
0: that challenge.
1: I never said they had to take shots of alcohol.
0: (laughs) Ah, point taken. Yeah. uh, so their beverage, yeah, of choice. I also, beverage of choice. That's a very good way to put it. Uh, hopefully nobody's drinking too much Coke when I do this, or they may get diabetes too. Who knows? Anyway, on with the podcast. <laughs>
1: or they might never go to sleep at night because they'll have too much caffeine in their system.
0: That's it. Nah, twitchy. <laughs> they call me Mr. Twitch. See, I've done it. I, that was a rabbit hole. We're going to roll it back. <laughs> talking about James Whale talking about the man in the iron mask now i believe you and i
1: i believe you and i both saw the same version the one that's on youtube yep and so listeners it's readily available and it's a, i think it's a decent um copy
0: that was a re- actually it was an amazingly good copy and that's the thing when you get these movies on youtube a lot of times i mean hell i've watched films where somebody set a camera up and recorded the film playing on television. And, you know, that really gets old. And, you know, you have some of these films. And, by the way, I'm... What's the best way to put this? I'm a big proponent of, you know, copyright, and you shouldn't get something for free if somebody put their creative work into it, right? But... Sometimes the only place you can find films now is on YouTube, and that's unfortunate. But when that's the case, that's the case. I mean, the other way you can find a movie, if it's not available anywhere else, you talk to Juan, and Juan will have it. You know, I was uh, I, I, he is yet to disappoint me when I've come up with some obscure movie that I, I suddenly have a wild hair that I want to see. And he's like, "Oh yeah, sure, sure, I got it. No problem, no problem. Send it right over." It's like, "Oh okay." I I, I shudder to think how big his warehouse is that he's got all these movies in. But again, different rabbit hole. So going back to James <laughs> Whale. So that's two, by the way. You're at, we're at two shots already. So. <laughs>
1: well, the listeners are now being well lubricated into the into the episode. <laughs>
0: with with their with their beverage of choice and that's all right. Yes it is. But yeah this but but yeah this was a really I was not disappointed by the quality of this uh this particular YouTube uh, version. I wonder I I honestly wonder where they got it. You know, did somebody rip it off of an old DVD or something because it didn't even have it didn't even have that look of VHS transfer. You know, this was way too clean. So, but I don't I'm, know. I just have I have transfer envy. Well,
1: especially if, as we talked about in our first movie part of the James Earl thing, *Journey's End*, and the copy of *Journey's End* that's on YouTube, but the only way to find that is nowhere near as good as the quality of this one. <laughs> so, mm. but Bakers can't be choosers. And,
0: and I was going to say that's one that I have not seen yet. So I, I will probably go looking for that because uh, when you message me about doing the uh, James Whale, you know, movies, I, it's especially since I watched this one, it's making me think I need to go back and watch some of his non-horror-related films because I'll be honest, the horror-related stuff is all that I've ever seen. You know, I've seen his Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, Invisible Man. I Bri- love Bride of Frankenstein. And, you know, that one's one Fiona really likes that one. We actually did that one on the uh, B movie cast and Fiona was the uh, guest host with us and, you know, big fan of that. And it's, it's also interesting when we watch any James whale film and I found myself kind of looking for this because he had such a controversial, uh, He had such a controversial lifestyle going on behind the scenes, you know, and I constantly wonder what in that is coming into his films, especially the way he looks at relationships and things of that nature, you know. So, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole yet either.
1: (laughs) Are you talking about him being... Gay? Is that what you mean by controversial lifestyle? I'm
0: talking about him. Well, I'm talking. Okay. I was trying to work around it till we got to that. But yeah, basically, that's what I'm talking about because. We brought it up in almost
1: a lot of these different episodes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, and that's the thing. He, you know, he was gay at a time when being gay was tantamount to being, you know, a communist or something. And it was just it could be the kiss of death for your career and you know, it's that's unfortunate. Uh, It was a product of the time, but I really feel that uh, he got the short end of the stick on some things because of that. But I also think, uh, you know, again, product of the times, but when you look at the way he handles some things in his films, I feel like that that comes through a lot in the way he handles relationships in the films. And he's really good at – especially the with the Hayes Code in place, you were very limited in what you could do in terms of, okay – Man and woman, they're going to kiss. Oh, they're not married. They're not going to be in the room in bed together. They're not going to be here. They're not going to be there. He manages to convey in this film a whole lot of dirty stuff that's going on without ever, ever explicitly laying anything out there. You know, especially with Louie and uh, the Countess that uh, he's kind of seeing on the side there uh, in the film. I mean it was a that was a that was well played there's the scene when they're at dinner together when uh, when uh, Marie is first introduced and they're at dinner and she's sitting across from the woman and it's just such a good scene because he's given you know Louis given the side eye to to his mistress she's she's saying all these double entendre things to Marie it's just a great little scene I love it
1: Oh, it is. and to go you to the controversy from my discussion with James Curtis and um Sam Irvin and those kind of things, neither one of them thinks that was an impact on his career. They think is both of them agree that it was the um the box office results um well, universal he got locked out because of the um creative changes those that are running Universal yeah. and that was so the yeah. creative changes and then. Because he was not getting the creative support he was before, he was put to lesser films, which, of course, then caused the box office to be lessened. Um, The way he treated people personally was not always the most uh, pleasant person to be around. had an effect on him.
0: That's very true, yeah.
1: So that combination of the things is what led him to stop directing. It was because he lost his passion for it. And that um, none of them agree, neither one of them agree that it was because of him being gay that left it. Because there was a lot of other openly gay directors that had careers at that True. same time all the way through. So it's a, pretty much, when I gather, it's an agreement that that was not an impact on his career okay. in there.
0: Just to let you know. I've Well... No, no, no. And I would, I would, I will defer to them on that because I'm by no means an expert on James Whale. I've just watched a bunch of his films and I like his work. But I do think, uh, and you brought that up. Yeah, the shift at Universal away from horror and into more serious subject matter, Uh, you know, I could totally see how that was a problem for him. You know, and the thing is, I still I wonder because some of his, a lot of his later work was not in the horror genre, even before the shift. So I don't know. It's I'm not going to dispute that that was a, that they say that wasn't a factor. I'm going to say I think his personal life may have been a factor at some level. But I think a bigger factor was, yeah, that Universal just backed out of that. and Well, if Universal, you you have to remember,
1: when I mean the change, I don't mean that them shifting from horror. It was literally the change of who was running Universal. The the, the, the family that was running it before loved him, and the people that took over did not care for him. And that was the big
0: difference. I see. See, and I thought it was also because of the shift away from horror in that genre. So because he'd done so much with that. He didn't he
1: did he did hard because he had to or you know in some of those things like it was like um do one for this to get something else it seemed like it wasn't because he had a big desire. He just liked to do different films. And his final okay. big one for Universal was Showboat. And that was after yeah. that that's when the um the hands that run Universal shifted. And mm. So, and it's the, the road back was the fir- the film he was working on. that had that impact where if it would have been the original hands, that would have been a totally different work. So he was getting creatively frustrated and uh, which led him mm. to finish out his run with universal. And then he started to go to other companies and uh, with mixed results. And I think it was mainly because he lost that passion is what it was, what is agreed upon and decided to go to mm. other things.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing, if you're not, what's the best way to put this? If you're in the movie business as just for the mechanics of making a movie and you're just there to make a living, you're probably not going to do that well simply because you're not going to have as much passion in it, you know, but, and you can see the films that he did do, I mean, every one of them, I feel like. His passion definitely comes through on the screen. And so, yeah, if he's lost his passion for it, then, yeah, he's not going to make a good movie. He's going to get away from it. I mean, it's kind of like if, you know, you had uh, Francis Ford Coppola directing commercials for Pizza Hut. You know, yeah, he it would probably pay pretty well. But I get the feeling his satisfaction level with the product would drop significantly, you know. So, there you go. Now, what I will I've agree with acquainted you. James Whale. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead.
1: I will agree with you in that whether intentionally or unintentionally, his lifestyle had an impact on how he would do certain things in films. There's a disagreement whether it was intentional or unintentional, but I think if, the, if that's the way you are as a person, whether it is intentional or not, it's going to still be there because you, you go for your own experiences in life and lenses. So that that's the path I take. Cause some people, it kind of takes, I'm taking the middle position between two different camps.
0: <laughs> no. And I totally can see that. And I'm, I am a believer that it had an impact on what he put on the screen or more to the point, how it made it onto the screen. But at the same time, I don't know if that was intentional or unintentional. I think some things were definitely put in there as kind of hidden signals, as it were, Mm -hmm. you know, because there was a whole code that you could uh, that that existed in Hollywood. So you could uh, you could get certain messages across to an to an underserved audience, you know, and they appreciated that at the time. Um, I mean, there's that famously, there's that scene in what was it? Was it Spartacus? I think, or which one? No, it was Ben Hur with Charlton Heston, where he and Tony Curtis. Uh, there was a cut scene where they had this discussion about oysters and clams, and apparently Tony Curtis was totally playing this up about being bisexual, and Charlton Heston had no clue that that was going on, and when he found out, they uh, he was like, "Okay, we're cutting that out of the movie." I'm calling the NRA. So, yeah. but, but oh, by the way, that was a rabbit hole. So, uh, so please take a shot, whatever you're drinking. That's three.
1: We, we might do some people in, but just remember, if you're hitting your limit, you can always pause the episode and pick up the next day after you've recovered.
0: That's true. That's true. Unless and you're doing unless you're doing I,
1: non-alcoholic beverages, and just go for it.
0: That's that is very true. So, uh, you know, I myself am drinking Diet Coke. This episode of the Diecast Movie podcast, not brought to you by Diet Coke, but Nick is.
1: <laughs> he's he, he actually, listeners, you can't see it, but he's wearing like those race car driver's shirts with little patches on them showing all the sponsorships that he has, you know, and uh, yeah. it, it's amazing. One of them's a law firm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I got the I got the law firm. You know, I got the uh, the big and tall store is also one of my sponsors because uh, you know Steve. Steve, having met me, knows that's a joke because I think I come up to your elbow. I'm pretty sure if we were standing next to each other, I come up to about your elbow, maybe a little bit higher, but not much. Path.
1: Well, to go back to your twins reference earlier, I could be like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you could be Danny DeVito.
0: That. I'm not going to say that's not accurate, you know, and, uh, you know, I do tend to have the Danny DeVito, especially at, at this point in my life, I really do. I, I tend to watch it's always sunny in Philadelphia and think, man, Danny DeVito's got some really good style going on. I need to, where does he get those pants? Yeah. You know, that's that's the kind of thing going through my head now. So that's a move back know. to By the man with the iron four.
1: mask. You're on your fourth shot.
0: That's, that's four. <laughs>
1: Now, whether Nick and I can keep this running score going accurately, the whole podcast, we'll we'll be determined as we go through it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. But, But okay. I love the
1: Musketeers. And interesting enough, I grew up, as you did, in the 70s, in the 80s, watching TV movies and seeing the three Musketeers, the four Musketeers. I remember seeing The Man in the Iron Mask, the TV movie with Richard Chamberlain. And – you just enjoyed it, the, the sword play, the the dynamics. And then to learn that a lot of these subsequent movies that did the Man in the Iron Mask from 1939 to 1977, the 19, what was it, 98 one or whatever, think, all, they all yeah. follow the same blueprint as the 1939 yep. version, which followed a slight blueprint of the one with Douglas Fairbanks earlier than that. I think it was 1929. So I think it was like 10 yeah. years earlier. Uh,
0: mhm. And the thing is it's it's a really good story. You know, at the end of the day, um I think Dumas was he when he was writing this stuff, he really captured a certain swashbuckling feel in his work and that's why his work became such popular fiction. And then of course that just led into you know, a series of movies about it. And, and you know, Hollywood was eating up swords and swashbuckling and all that. And I, my favorite thing is, I think of all that type of film, even more than Pirates, I always like the ones that are set in France because they just have such a distinct look. You know, the way the musketeers dress, the way everybody, uh, it has that very... Uh, very French aristocracy look about it that really I feel like the French really were kicking it you know when they were doing the aristocracy right up until Marie Antoinette lost her head over it you know but that's neither here nor there
1: and for listeners you can stay taking a shot take a take, eat some cake
0: <laughs> yeah eat some please let them have cake for number five when I when I brought up Marie Antoinette see that's a rabbit hole
1: That'll balance out the uh, the fluid intake. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Man in the Iron Mask, for those that are wondering about it, it's basically a story of twin boys that yep. are, are for King Louis XIII. And um, yep. the first twin, named Louis, um, gets there, goes out, they show him, this is the new, this will be the heir to the throne, and unbeknownst to the king, the wife is still having another one coming out. And that's when yeah. Philip comes out. And they escort that baby to a separate spot to keep it from the public knowing about it. Except for a couple of people. One evil person finds out about it. And, of course, the good people do. And uh, yeah. the king decides that this one should be raised by oh, one of my favorite musketeers. Dark. Tanyan, Dr. played by Doctanian. Warren William, and yeah, so he he goes to raise him as his own son, in a sense, and it, explaining to him that his father just did, did things for France that he had to do, and but never to mention that it was he was the son of the king.
0: That's it, and you know, I thought it was interesting because it wouldn't have occurred to me just how politically damaging it could be to have twin sons pop out as your heir to the throne because, and literally you could make the legitimate argument if you were, uh, if you were, I guess into this whole lineage thing. Okay. Louis was born first. So technically he is the heir to the throne, but I could also see how this could cause possible civil war certain people would want to exploit this. I, I did think it was interesting that they implied that the midwife and the other guy that was in attendance at the uh, birth, yeah, they kind of got uh, the axe, as it were. Uh, and it was also interesting, did you notice that that uh, whenever they needed to execute somebody, they were hanging them? I thought France was all about the guillotine.
1: But the guillotine came so, later. <laughs>
0: Ah, so okay, yeah, because this was the mid, this was the mid seventeenth century, and yeah, you're right. The guillotine came in the eighteenth century, when they were uh, when they had to process everybody in job lots. You know, it gets it's too slow to hang them. Let's just start chopping heads. So yeah. By the way, that's number six. Um, the the rabbit hole of the guillotine. Yes,
1: yeah, so that, that that one could be a deadly one for you. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm just trying to get ahead, Steve. Come on.
1: Of course,
0: <laughs> but I'm um, bummed. Okay, and I'll be listen- here all night. Try the steak. And
1: for yeah. listeners, that's basically the prologue that sets up the movie. And yeah, then they, it, it does a time jump to where they're 21 or 22 years of age, and yep. the king is now Louis the 14th, who became king when he was five years old, and yeah. um, was being helped by a corrupt. Fouquet. The corrupt Fouquet. It's, it's Fouquet, yep. right?
0: Yep. Um, who, yeah, it's Fouquet. And, and then I think there was, uh, what was it? It was Colbert was the... Uh, there was... Colbert okay, yeah, was the good Fouquet guy. Was, Colbert was the good guy. He was like, the, like the, the minister for law or something of that. I can't remember what his title was. And Fouquet was the minister of finance. And yeah, he was like the devil whispering in this kid's ear, and just imagine for a minute though—you a five-year-old child is suddenly made king—and yeah, there were probably advisors and that that were actually running the government, but at the same time, the way things work with that with an aristocracy is, hey, the king's word is law, and so you got a five-year-old kid that is suddenly. Nobody's going to tell him no. And what happens? Uh, you, dev- you have a really bad human develop out of something like that. And he- Louis was awful. I mean, he was just awful. I mean, I think the first time we see him, he's busy placing bets with Fouquet uh, about whether or not the rope will break on the fourth or the fifth hanging that day. And he's like, oh, the rope always breaks on the fourth hanging. And he's having the hangings happen right where he can watch them out of the window of his uh, throne room. That's cold hearted.
1: Well, That's period. reality TV in the, old, in the olden days.
0: <laughs> it, well, yeah, they didn't. Yeah, God, life was rough before the Internet. I mean, people were bored. <laughs> you know, the most entertaining thing going on was hangings. And yeah, he apparently was keeping that busy because, oh yeah, he was starving the entire country
1: with well, the salt tax because he
0: was overtaxing them. Yeah, the salt tax. Apparently, he was also taxing wool. He was taxing uh, flour. You know, he was taxing all these basic necessities of life. And you know, yeah, you need taxes to run a government. But you also need the people to have money and be prosperous so they can pay their taxes. You know, that's the thing. If you grind them down to nothing, yeah, you're going to get all the blood out of that stone, but then you're not going to have anything left but a bunch of stones. And that was kind of the point that Louis was getting the country to. And, yeah, it was going to be rough. And then he had this political marriage that they were going to be putting together. Uh, and I think what was it Colbert wanted him to marry the uh, the daughter of the Spanish king, mm-hmm. and then I think Fouquet was uh, was interested in hooking up with England because England was a naval power, and so at least that's the impression that I got. But mm-hmm. of course, the Louis he didn't care; he was more interested in hooking up with uh, with what was it, Mademoiselle de Valois, the Countess? I think that was her yeah. name. Yeah, she- what?
1: The countess that
0: is basically his, yeah. his girl
1: toy at that time, you know, and
0: yeah, and that was Marion Martin, if I'm not mistaken. And you know, she was doing all right as a girl, as, as far as a king's mistress goes, you know, you could do worse than Marion Martin. I'm just saying, she now, was a bit of all right.
1: The interesting thing about this movie, it definitely shows that it, it implies that people are a product of their environment instead of you know, because the nature nurture type thing. Because yeah. Philip, in his environment, is raised up with all these virtues and because he's raised by the musketeers and the yep. virtuous man, an honorable man, the total opposite of Louis. Of and, Louis.
0: Yep. Yeah, and, and I also think it's worth noting that uh, when the king gave uh, Philip to D'Artagnan, He said, "Okay, take him back to your region of France. You have an estate in Gascony, which is a province in southwestern France. It's pretty far away from uh, Paris. And actually, at that time, the seat of power would have probably been Versailles. So it's pretty far from there. But uh, you take him down there. I'm going to give you a good income. And what that meant at the time was, hey, I'm going to give you all this property and you get the income off this property. And I'm also going to say that that area doesn't have to pay any taxes. And that, that's, that becomes important because flash forward 20 years later, and Louis, as we've already said, he's taxing the hell out of the country, right? Yep. And he gets mad because his tax collectors got the boot when they went to Gascony. And that's because that's where the musketeers live now. You know, D'Artagnan's there. You've got Aramis, Porthos, and Athos are there with them. And, you know, they're the four godfathers of Philip. And that is very much a nature-nurture situation because he becomes, you know, Philip is kind of the fifth musketeer. So... And good for him. And by the way, he has that a uh, really, really annoying mustache that was popular at the time. Those little thin mustaches that I always think of as something that a used car salesman would have. So I'm glad that he got rid of that, so he could play the king at a certain point. But I'm getting ahead of myself.
1: Yeah, which is fine. And um, yeah, so because of the king winning the tax there. He sends people down there to arrest them and bring them back, which brings Philip to see Lewis. And they decide – Lewis finds out also there's an assassination attempt and he wants to get out of it. And lo and behold, a body double. And they do the switcheroo. Yeah. You go – he survives, shows shows how he's a man of the people and the, the people suddenly love him, you know, and all that yep. kind of stuff. And they're total opposites. He meets – the princess played by Joan Bennett Bennett yeah you know, and um from some Spain and they're falling in love and she's just like well you're so different than you were before little does she know
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and that's the thing um because she met you know Louis, and you know she was introduced to him and had that dinner where they were he would she basically was seated right across from his mistress And Louie made no bones about it. He's just like, oh, yes, she's like one of the family. Wink, wink. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's rude. And, you know, she's not very happy about that. And sure enough, she's thinking this is not going to be a good deal. Then she goes and meets Philip playing the king. And she's like, oh, my God, this guy's so nice. I don't know, man. Maybe he was just having a bad morning or whatever. And then she goes back and runs into Louis again and he is so awful that she decides she's gonna write a letter to Dad and say, Look, Dad, we gotta break this off. I know that an alliance with Spain is and with France is important for Spain, but come on, Dad, this guy's he's a loser, he's got a mistress. It's just gonna be a big embarrassment for us if I marry this guy, right? So I gotta go. And Louis finds out about this, or more to the point, excuse me, Forte finds out about it, because he's got spies in her retinue. And so he actually has her messenger murdered, brings the letter to King Louis, Louis reads it, and needless to say, he's not happy. And he kind of confronts the ambassador to Spain with it, and the ambassador's just like, yeah, we got to get out of here, because this is bad and then turns around and she runs into uh, Philip again playing the king and okay i'm going to say this even if philip is the nicest guy in the world and she just she's falling in love with him okay she doesn't realize that there are two people and she's seeing louis sometimes and she's seeing philip others you got to be thinking if you're this lady what is going on? Does this guy have a split personality or what? And I I would say that to me is worse than him just being a bad person because you never know what you're going to get. And it's like, run, just get out of there lady. But if she did that, that really wouldn't have been good for the movie. So she sticks around, (laughs) you know, and it's, they keep going back and forth doing this because it's beneficial for the king to have a double, because that means he can go running off with his mistress at times, and leave Philip to play, you know, nice with Princess Maria. But also, Colbert has his own agenda, and he knows that Philip is is also royal, and so he's using Philip to get his agenda pushed through. And Philip's only agenda at this point is to get. Because, okay, we've kind of skipped over this, but they arrested all of the musketeers and threw them into the to the uh, Bastille, I guess, the uh, dungeon under the Bastille. And so the the musketeers are locked up and his whole goal, Philip's whole goal is to get them out. And he knows if he plays along and does what Louis wants, he can do that. But at one point, he actually gets the opportunity to be the king for a whole all day because you know louis is louis is so worn out and tired from being a tyrannical loser as a king you know he's like oh i'm so stressed out because i've been taxing people to death and running around with my mistress i think i'm going to go to her uh, her estate you know in some other part of france and so for one day philip is the king as louis and during that day, he goes through a whole series of different things that he gets done, including getting the, uh, getting the uh, musketeers released from prison. He also declares the betrothal to Princess Maria from Spain, which kind of – that's kind of putting a lock on the fact that they're going to get married. Because Louis had said, you know what, I'm not going to marry her. I'll find – I'll marry some – the British uh, daughter or whatever – to cement a relationship there, but I'm not going to marry uh, this lady because she's just she's annoying him essentially because she's not playing along with him being a philanderer. And now Philip has locked Louis into that, and Philip almost gets away, but Fouquet manages to catch up with him and throw and bring him back to the palace. And Louis is just going to kill it. He's like, yeah, we're going to hang you. And that's when Colbert shows up and says, you can't hang him because you can't shed royal blood. Apparently that was a thing. And I thought that all the uh, civil wars and stuff were exactly that. Royal people shedding each other's blood, but don't get me started there. That was almost number seven, by the way, but we're going to move right on through that. (laughs) So, so, based on this and then they actually bring Louis and Philip's mom out, Queen. And apparently Louis has sent her off to a convent, but they dig her up out of the convent and she acknowledges that Philip is her son also. And so at this point Louis kind of in a rock and a hard place. But fortunately for the, for the title of the story, he is a sadistic-minded person and figures out the best way to, to handle this. He has an iron mask created, and he locks it around Philip's head so no one can ever see that he looks like the king. And then he throws him into the dungeon under the Bastille, says nobody can visit him, and even better... He says now all the guards have to treat him like he's royalty, but not in a nice way. They just have to call him your majesty and kind of whenever they're doing this, it's essentially a grinding salt into the wound. And I mean, Louis is such a bad human that he actually is like, "Ooh, I wonder how long it will take for his beard to grow to the point that it chokes him to death inside the iron mask. Ooh, and you know, it's just, that is freaking diabolical, dude. I mean, wow.
1: I couldn't, it's one of the things I don't think I ever thought about. I don't think you probably ever would have thought about, oh, the guy in the iron mask won't be able to shave. You know, eventually the hair growth is going to cause an issue, but yet his mind goes right to there. It's like, oh, I wonder how long it's going to take for you to die by your own hair. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that is a whole other level of super villainy.
1: And okay, he keeps the I'm key. And he keeps the key around his neck and he looks at it all the yeah. time. And then of course they do a montage yeah. and move time forward one month. And that's when you know I don't want to spoil the movie, but the rescue attempt is made and and, and the ending yeah. goes through to how it how it's gonna end. And Yeah. So as as and- to whether the good twin or the evil twin survive in the end, because there have been movie versions that differ <laughs> you know yeah in some of them in, in, in different ways that they do it. So it'll we'll, we'll let you know listeners and you go watch it on YouTube yeah. to see how it, it plays out at the end part. but it, it's definitely a movie worth seeking out to watch.
0: Very much so. And uh, to, to quote one of Mary's uh, favorite uh, things about filmmaking, there's a lot of German expressionism. In this film, I think, with the way they use lighting and angles and a lot of the shots. And it really is a very, very well-made movie. I mean, you watch this, all the sword fights look really good. It's, It's well acted. The cast is actually incredible in this. And, you know, it's funny because there were a couple of surprising people that kind of pop up in the background of the cast. Because I was shocked to learn this was, I believe this was Peter Cushing's first film.
1: His film debut, Peter Cushing in a small little role. But this is where Peter, if you're a Peter Cushing fan, this is where he gets his start in film.
0: (laughs) Yep. And I thought that was funny. And then another, I'm a, I grew up watching Gilligan's Island. And Porthos was played by Alan Hale, who was Alan Hale Jr., i.e. the Skipper. He was the Skipper's dad. So you got that going on. And I thought that was kind of fun, you know, and it's, it was also funny because when I was looking at Porthos, I could sort of see Skipper playing Porthos a little bit there, you know, which (laughs) which, in the subsequent
1: version of the film, Alan Hale jr. Played Porthos. So it's, 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 it's just mind go, mind blown. But I remember Alan Hale for a movie he did, I think it was the year earlier when he played little john or john little depending on which way in adventures of yeah. robin hood i mean that to me is, is for me his iconic film
0: <laughs> well and you know it's funny because i think he still holds the record as the actor who has played little john in the most film versions of robin hood because he actually played the character 3 times he was a uh, little john in 1922 in a version of Robin Hood. He was Little John in uh, what I think it was 1938. Didn't you say it was the year right before this that yeah, that came yes. out? Yeah, so, that, the one with yeah, Earl so, Flynn. Thir- yeah. And then there was he, he, one of his last films he did, well, actually, it was his final film, was The Rogues of Sherwood Forest in 1950. And he played Little John again. So he played Little John in almost every decade for 30-plus years. He kind of missed the 1940s, but still, that's pretty good. And it also says that there was no set age for Little John. Just calling it, you know, because he was, what, he was probably 30-ish when he started playing him, and he was in his his late 50s or 60 when he uh, played him the last time. So there you go.
1: And who knows? Maybe in the '40s he did a stage version just to keep the tradition going. You know,
0: it's <laughs> you know, I it would it wouldn't surprise me.
1: So, but he does an excellent job. I mean, all the Musketeers are excellent. I mean, it's just you expect because this is the swan song for the classic Musketeers in the story yeah. and in the movie. A, l- a little bit yep. of a spoiler there, but I mean, it's just it, it is what it is. I mean, they're they're older, so you know. They don't have too many more adventures yeah. set for them in the future, and yeah. I, but they—they're given a good movie or good story to go
0: out with. Yes, I would definitely agree. It was a it was an excellent way for them to end their musketeering careers. And when you think about it, they are really fighting for all of France because if Louis continues to be king. France is going to be kind of screwed. If Philip is king, France is going to do okay. And again, don't want to give anything away, but do remember that the French aristocracy continued to suck into the 18th century. That's why we ended up with the guillotine working overtime on the French aristocracy. So even if uh, Philip takes over and does a great job, He's got about a hundred years before it's all going to go to the guillotine. So there you go.
1: Well, and also this is a work of fiction, so.
0: <laughs> well, there's that too. You, Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm projecting. Yeah, you're right. This is, it was a work of fiction. So that's true also. Wait, wait, wait. You mean this was a work of fiction? This isn't historical drama? I
1: didn't know. You, I, I thought you knew this was not a documentary.
0: <laughs> oh, see, I thought it was a documentary, you know. Actually, I thought it was found footage, and I was really confused because I'm like, "Man, they were doing great filming this stuff back then."
1: Well, you know, France but is always ahead of the game on certain parts, but yeah,
0: that's it. By the way, that was uh, my found footage was my eighth rabbit hole. Take a drink.
1: <laughs> they're up. To, they're up to number eight. We we almost got double digits, but I'm sure we'll do it before we're done. <laughs> Lewis Hayward played the dual role. Um what yeah. did you think of what did you think of his performance? I enjoyed it myself.
0: Okay. I loved his performance and okay, first off, it's always tricky in these older films, you know, to do the one actor playing two roles because you just didn't have the technology to do it the way they can do it today. So they really had to do a lot of camera trickery and a lot of doubles and this, that, and the other. But he was so good in this role because when Philip was being Philip, he sounded, looked, and acted different. And when Philip was being Louis, or when Louis was, or Louis, excuse me, uh, was, you know, being King, he had his own style. And it was the difference. Philip came across as an adult to me and Louis came across as a spoiled child and he talked like a child and he had this giddy crazy look. He'd get in his eyes that you did not see Philip get. And I thought he was brilliant. I mean, it's really Lewis Hayward did a fantastic job with this.
1: I thought he did too. And, and I thought the, um, costuming that they had them in the makeup, you know, cause when they take the mask off mm. of them, you know, they, they, it was one of the things I was curious, is he going to have a beard, you know, cause he's been in, in a month, he better have facial hair. And he did. <laughs>
0: you know. Yeah, he did. And he had rough facial hair. That was not a neatly trimmed beard. Like they often give people for this stuff. No, it looked like what you would expect if somebody hadn't been able to shave for 30 days. And his hair you know, too, or, they, had, they,
1: they had the appropriate makeup yeah. for the hair.
0: Yeah, his hair was kind of crazy. His uh, beard was kind of crazy. And I will also say that when they took him out of the Iron Mask, it was was very impressive the way his character changed because his character was, okay, 30 days in that Iron Mask really took a toll on him. And you could tell he was uh, just a little bit over the edge there for a while. You know, and it was, it was, it was well done.
1: Yeah. I thought that the subtlety right. also when he was wearing the mask, you could feel mm. the weight that was on him because he had, he could not hold his head up. Right. You know, and it was always yeah. leaning it, and this and that. Cause that I'm, I'm sure like the reality is the mask was probably extremely lightweight, but he gave the acting yeah. that it was extremely heavy on him. And I thought it was, it was, it was an excellent performance. I really enjoyed, like I yeah. said, his role.
0: No, I think he did a great job. And, uh, you know, it was, I mean, the iron mask. Yeah, if you think, what would an iron mask weigh? And I'm just going to guess probably 30 pounds for that much iron being on his head. Because, you know, this was not steel. This was not a composite metal. This was straight up iron. And iron is heavy. You know, (laughs) so it was, uh, that was a heavy mask. And yeah, he did a great job there. And I think when he was doing his romantic scenes with Princess Maria, it was also very interesting to see how he was able to play those as the Louis character. And then when she, you know, understands that he's actually a twin brother, Philip, how he can be more himself with that. And you see that some, too. And I thought that was interesting. So.
1: And speaking of Princess Marie, Maria, yeah, Joan Bennett, we all know from she has a long credit list, but most people think of her in Dark Shadows, the TV series. The first time I remember seeing Joan Bennett was in Suspiria.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: Which I think is her final. Ah credit i think it might be her, at least her final film i'm not sure if it's, it's not her final one it's one of her final ones but i remember her in yeah. that role and, and that was my first introduction to not knowingly i mean i might have seen her other stuff when i was really young and didn't realize it was her you know because you, you know when yeah. you're younger you just you don't really pay attention yeah, just... to the actors you just watch the movie you don't pay attention yeah. to the names is what i'm meaning and but in Suspiria, I was like, oh, yeah, you're looking up to different people. And I was, when I was seeing it and I was like, "That that's Joan Bennett. And, then, you know, you're able to place her with different things. But she has a long career.
0: A long career. And she did a lot of really good movies, too. You know, and, yeah, Suspiria, I absolutely love Suspiria, the original. And, you know, she was brilliant in that. I mean, she was great in this. Uh, you know, I mean, this was, yeah. And of course, I mean, Dark Shadows. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fun that, you know, she was in the House of Dark Shadows.
1: And I think for people that only know her for Dark Shadows and yeah, sometimes because the the way the scripts were turned out and you had to do every day was being a soap opera and yeah. she I think with her acting style needed more she was used to movies where we have more takes have more time to get the material you're not getting the scripts rushed if you don't judge your acting ability just on dark shadows because people say like, oh no. she's having trouble remembering this and that look at the majority of her career because that's just one small fraction of her career and you can see these great performances when she's given time to know the material and everybody's able to adjust. To that rapid turnover some people can adjust to it really well in a soap opera yeah. format and other people need that extra time and i think she's an was an actor that just needed that little bit of extra time and she could bring out great performances
0: that's it because i mean you think about it when they were filming dark shadows it's like you said they were getting you know they were shooting a week's worth of stuff constantly so it's like hey here's your and think about this four episodes of a half-hour show is a feature-length movie, right? So she was filming every month probably the equivalent of five feature-length movies, you know, and just think about that for a second. That is mind-boggling. She has just—she must have just been constantly memorizing dialogue and— you know then you go and give her time to actually study and do a movie yeah i feel like she's going to do a lot better
1: and 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 so that's the way i look at it with her but alan hale we already talked about those are like the three main people i wanted to bring up Actors, but who yeah who do you want to bring up
0: anybody well you know Well, I mean, we talked about, we brought up Peter Cushing briefly, and that's it's fair to bring him up briefly in this because he's only in this briefly, Uh, but it is nice that it was his uh, debut film. I think uh, possibly my favorite actor in this, though, just as far as who gave my favorite performance was the guy who played Fouquet, and I'm going to totally destroy... His last name, Joseph Schildkraut, I believe, you know, and it sounds it's an Austrian. He was Austrian-American and he actually won an Oscar for his performance as Captain Alfred de Vries in the film The Life with Emile Zola in 1937. So this guy was an Academy Award winning actor going into this film. And, you know, he played essentially the devil on Louis' shoulder. He was the finance minister, and possibly my favorite line in the movie from him was when Colbert is talking to him about, you know, we need to be doing this for the betterment of all of France. And he just says, I'm not interested in bettering all of France. I'm interested in bettering Fouquet. You know, I'm interested in my own self, uh, you know, in bettering things for me and my family everybody else can go hang literally so I loved him in this
1: he's one of those evil guys with the mustache in the beginning doesn't have the mustache but later on he does <laughs> yeah. you can just see twirling the mustache and just relishing yeah. in all the evil that he's doing and it's just like
0: uh-uh. that's it I mean if he if you needed a a, a dastardly deed dude he would be him. And he just – he had that smarmy look about him. And, yeah, he was – yeah, he was super fun. (laughs) I love a good villain because at the end of the day, your protagonists are only as good as the villains they're up against. And he was – you know, at the end of the day, Louis was a child. He was a man-child. Fouquet was the one that was dangerous because he's the one that had the brains.
1: Yeah, one head to brains, one head to power. You put them together and you get a a bad situation.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, again, devil on the shoulder, and I guess Colbert was uh, was the angel on the other shoulder, only he wasn't having much luck. I'll be honest, I was surprised that 15 years after this kid took power, Colbert was still able to be in the position he was in. Yeah. It's also surprising because he pretty much had the same position under the previous king. So that either says he was really really good in that position or he was really bad in it and didn't deserve a promotion. And then, I don't know.
1: And the interesting thing is we both refer to him multiple times as the good guy. But I always yeah. keep thinking back to the the the, the nurse <laughs> The, you know, the, the nurse,
0: the, ner- the midwife, and the, midwife the, uh, and the other guy,
1: which is, I guess, the butler yeah. or whatever, you know, the, the guy there. And we both we both hinted that they were taken care of, you know, for the betterment yeah. of France, you know, maybe maybe they were paid yeah. off and shipped to another country. I don't think so. <laughs> mm,
0: no, because I think the specific line was because, you know, the king was like, I can't put a death warrant on my own child and he's like no no colbert's like no 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 you don't have to give him to d'artagnan give d'artagnan some cash and some title send him down to the south of france never have to deal with it it'll be perfect and then they're leaving and the guy says well what about those two and he's like yeah it's a pity we don't have a d'artagnan for everyone yep and that yeah they totally got killed i I, I agree with (laughs) you Totally got killed so
1: so we, yeah. Yes, we are calling him the good guy, but he did some dark ops also.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, hey, what can you say when SEAL Team Six is involved? Sometimes people get hurt. You know. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the I don't know. It was I, I'm still going to call him overall the good guy, but yeah. Again, I think this was one of those things that they just kind of whitewashed over. But it was definitely implied that those two were uh, were assassinated.
1: Let's put it this way: his his intentions were was best for the country,
0: yeah, as a whole, and you know, not as much right. as personal and, interest. Yeah, and that's one of the things with Philip too, because at one point Philip has the opportunity to escape, and I think it's Colbert that asks him, you know, or no, I think it was D'Artagnan that asked him, you know, he's like, hey. Do you want to go and be a normal person and just escape? Or do you want to try and bump Louis off the throne and do this for France? And, you know, that's the difference between Louis and Philip. Philip looked at it as his duty to take care of the country. And Louis looked at the country's duty was to do what he said. So big difference there, but sorry, going down another uh, side road. I won't say a rabbit hole because we were still on topic. But yeah, that it was, was a definitely topic. a side.
1: Yeah, we were still on the movie, so I don't think that. I don't think yeah. that, that. I don't think that was a rabbit hole whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> no,
0: not at all. So.
1: Well, what did you think of James Wales directing and handling in the movie? Because one thing I don't want to, you did bring up earlier, I almost forgot to mention. Also, I really enjoyed the effects of the the, the twins being together in the same thing. Yeah. Most of the time it was mm-hmm. very seamless. The only time I could really see the effect is when they had a window in the background with the lighting coming from the window and it stood out. But they, that was only for a yeah. few seconds. The rest of the time it was very well done as in most James Wales movies, the special effects are almost always excellent.
0: Yeah, and that was it. They did a great job with the effects in this and really the only effects that they needed to do were associated with the two being played by one person you know because this wasn't this wasn't a monster movie you didn't have you didn't have to deal with the invisible man for example you didn't have to deal with the frankenstein's monster or anything of that nature but you did have to deal with this one actor playing two roles and that's that's tough And I think he does a good job with it. I think he also managed to, I think his direction helped make some of the minor characters more believable. And, you know, I feel like he was paying a lot of attention to detail with it. And, I mean, that's kind of what he was known for, though. And I I really enjoyed his, his interpretation of this story.
1: I like I like the way and, you interpreted yeah. it too. But continue. Yeah,
0: well, and I was going to say, especially when you're in the dungeon, the way that he plays the uh, the when the king when Philip is in the dungeon wearing the iron mask, I think the way that they cut that together really just highlighted the desperation and the the I guess the overall just sadness because this guy really thought he was going to die in that iron mask and i mean look how far it drove him in just a month now imagine if this had been years you know because i always go back to another uh, french story i think it was french the uh, count of monte cristo and i believe in that story the oh by the way this is number nine uh, i believe in that story the protagonist is locked up for something like 17 years. So imagine if he had spent a significant portion of his life locked in that iron mask, he would have been just bonkers because after 30 days he was, you know, he was pretty rough.
1: Well, according to King but Louis the 13th, yeah. he'd be dead because he'd been strangled by his own hair.
0: That's <laughs> true. And, you know, I part of me has to wonder about that myself. I mean, I'm just—I I have a beard, and occasionally I let it get a little bit unkempt. I don't feel like I've ever been in danger of being killed by it, but at the same time, I've, I'm not wearing an iron mask, so I can't get a hold of it. But I would have said by about ni- day ninety, he would have been in danger of uh, death by beard aspiciation. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: So, something would it get uh-huh. well. Well, actually, think about because his hair yeah. is growing too, and the mask oh god, the people don't realize it, it goes all the way around his head. So yeah. there's only so much hair that's going to be able to come down before it all gets blocked up, and eventually that hair could start to compress and crush him.
0: Oh my god! This is a, that's a much more diabolical mask than we realized. You're right. Totally crush him. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. And that's, that's so diabolical. I love it.
1: Yeah, talk about you have the a very
0: evil. Yeah, you have a very evil mind going on there, Steve. I like it.
1: Well, that's what that, it, <laughs> t- it took me a lot longer to come up with that idea than it did the guy who came up. With he was like, right away, he'll strangle on it. It was like almost instantaneous. I, you know, yeah, and I, I watched I know it a couple of days ago, so I had a couple of days, and it just now came to me. Wait a minute. The hair in his head. Ooh, ooh, it's, you yeah. talk about the slow crushing and and the brain damage yeah. and, and just,
0: ugh, ugh. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> ugh. Wow, well, that's a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't want to give away the ending, so we won't say whether or not he dies by hair. Oh,
1: actually, actually, he does not die by hair. We we might as well just put it out there, because I'm just going to say Yeah, it.
0: no, he doesn't. No. That, I'll be honest if he had died by hair I think everybody would have known that
1: <laughs> I, I think now I know somebody who does films and a producer might throw out an idea you know we can have this person where they're stuck in a thing and they, and that, that was the definite people realize it when they open up the mask and you know somehow they're given a hair growth formula as a spell with the mask <laughs> in it so, so it happens a lot quicker and you could do the special effect and they're basically crushed by their own hair <laughs>
0: I, I, I'm thinking about that now. So that's a, <laughs> yes. And you'll get a, uh, you'll get a writing credit if that comes up. So, I'll live so with that. I'll be
1: happy. Just to be like,
0: Hey, if I saw hey, the na- if I saw we'll, my name we'll in the credits, you.
1: I'd like, I know who's dying in this one <laughs> or how they're dying. in what. yeah, one.
0: yeah. Yeah. You're knowing how they're dying. Hey, oh man. No, but this was a really good movie. I'm glad that you uh, suggested we do this. And definitely a good send-off for uh, a series on James Whale, you know. Yeah,
1: for me, it's a, it's been a 10-movie journey, and I've enjoyed every single one of them. Each one has been different um, in aspects of how Whale would go about handling those things. I've seen certain things that Whale does that's very similar in, in hand, how he does his work, and some things that are a little different as he's, as he's grown, because I saw him from his first film and To, you know, now it's like nine years later from when he started out because the first one came out in 1930, and then this one's 1939. So I'm able to see that progression. And it is amazing with a little bit, a little more than a 10 year period, how much work he put out over 20 movies and the diversity of the work and the quality of the work. It's it's just, it boggles the mind and the, the brilliance. Of his creative vision.
0: Yeah, no, he, and that's the thing you have been doing this deep dive on him. I haven't, so it's harder for me to see what is a specific whale whaleism. <laughs> sure, we'll call it a whaleism. Um, you know what? Because every director does have their own unique style, and again, he did as Mary would love for me to point out he did like German expressionism, you know, and that was something that he brought into, he had some of that in this film, especially uh, when they were in the dungeon scenes with all the dark, the shadowing and the angles and stuff like that.
1: Oh, I agree. Now, one thing I I forgot to ask you early before we started talking about the movie is Mm -hmm. Nick, you not only co-host the B movie cast podcast, but you also are a producer of independent films.
0: Yes, I am. Lost
1: Prevention, Wretch, and House of Usher. So this yep. will be coming out Ac- in next. This okay, episode will be fun. coming out. This is we're recording this in the beginning of November, and this episode will be coming out probably in March, April. It's hard to say because it all depends how the other episodes come out. Because it's coming out near the end of the run. Um, yeah. So where would House of Usher be available? in early spring late winter
0: okay that is a good question and uh first off it's fall of usher oh i'm sorry but
1: I, everybody does a, it no I'm no, sure. no that's
0: okay <laughs> no that's okay because we're doing a mashup of a bunch of different post stories so fall fall of usher is the title and it we do have a distribution deal but i'm not allowed to give any details of it at this point uh, it should be released, however, uh, first quarter of next year. So when it's released, I would look for it on Amazon or visit all of uh, uh, thoughtflyfilms.com. Uh, if you visit thoughtflyfilms.com, there is a link on that page to Fall of Usher. There's also a link to the other films that uh, Thoughtfly's done which uh, I've been a producer and writer on three of them, including Fall of Usher. Uh, they have five feature films total, though. So check out ThoughtFlyFilms.com, and that'll give you the link to the latest on Fall of Usher.
1: And hopefully, listeners, when this comes out, it'll be out there, and um, Nick will let me know, and I can put in the show notes where you can go exactly to find this the film. I have yet to see Fall of Usher, but... When it does come out, um, I'm going to be talking to Nick about that and his other two films that he's produced, and basically we'll do an interview discussing. Because I've never had anybody that's been a producer only. It'll be interesting to talk about somebody that's gone into production side of it. I've had people that have (laughs) worn the multiple hats. They're the director, to the producer, to the writer, you know, and so on, or the actor producer. But your main role is the producer.
0: Yep. (laughs) That's it. I uh, that was my main role, and uh, I think it's a role that is often overlooked. Uh, uh, but I would say that because, oh yeah, I'm a producer. But no, I would be more than happy to talk to you about that stuff, man. Thank you. And also, always happy to talk about filmmaking.
1: And also, you're a writer. Rumor has it. Do <laughs> um, you want to say, if you want to take a few moments to talk about your works and where people can find them?
0: Well, sure. Uh, I have written, I write a series of uh, urban fantasy books, the Werewolf Friar series. Uh, there are currently three books available in that series, uh, Blood Curse, Blood Sacrifice, and werewolves, zombies, and leprechauns, which is an anthology of short stories set in the world of werewolf for hire. Uh, I have also collaborated with my wife Fiona on two cookbooks: uh, the B Movie Cookbook, the 1950s, and the B Movie Cookbook, the 1960s. And those are those, and my werewolf for hire books are all available through Amazon. But you can, if you'd like, a signed copy. Uh, Go to authornickbrown.com, and that's Nick with no K, authornickbrown.com, and you can pick up any one of my uh, books there, and I'll be happy to send you a signed copy. Uh, If you purchase the Kindle version, though, I'm not going to sign that because people get mad when I write on their Kindles with a Sharpie.
1: I was going to say, you could could sign it with Invisible Ink.
0: (laughs) I, I could. That's true and you know just get out the little uh the little black light or whatever it is and shine it over the kindle and you'll see my signature but i yeah (laughs) no i i I will be happy to sign any physical media for you though
1: (laughs) As as for his werewolf books my son ben has them all and has enjoyed them um, I, I've enjoyed, I've had the, I have the fifties cookbook. I haven't gotten to sixties one yet. I'm going to be getting that from me the next time we see each other at monster bash. Hopefully awesome. you'll be at the one in June.
0: We, we will, I'm going to have a table. Mary's going to have a table for the B movie cast. And, uh, yeah, we were actually going to premiere the, uh, B movie cookbook, the 1960s at the 2020 monster bash. Which did not happen because of uh, COVID nineteen, so we're going to have a belated premiere in 2022 for the B movie cookbook at the Monster Bash. But I'm I'm very excited. I'm particularly excited because we met uh, Beverly Washburn, who was in the film Spider Baby. Uh, We met her at the Monster Bash in 2019, and she actually agreed to work with us on the B-Movie Cookbook, the 1960s. So there is a feature interview with her. Uh, She gave me some exclusive uh, behind-the-scenes stills from the film, and also she provided some of her favorite recipes, and so we included those in the book as well. So I'm very excited about that, and a big kudos to Beverly Washburn for her contributions to the book.
1: There you go, listeners. And um, those, those websites that Nick referred to will be in the show notes, so you can click on them if you didn't have a chance to write them down because I know some of, a lot of people like myself listen to podcasts when they're driving or walking or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to write things down when you're in the midst of – doing something where you should not be writing something down.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Legally. So. And, uh, yes, that's uh,
1: And I think we came up to what? We got nine shots in. We never we didn't get double digits. We missed by one. We came we missed it by that much.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. The uh, good job there, agent. <laughs> hey, Maxwell Smart. That's yeah, it by yeah. that much.
1: That much. We were so close. But Nick, thank you for joining me in, with this James Earl retrospective.
0: Uh, Steve, thank you for having me on again. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk about this uh, movie. It was a lot of fun to talk about James Whale because I think he is a uh, he's an excellent filmmaker and he contributed a lot to our modern understanding of cinema. And i I think it's important to remember guys like him. And so you doing a retrospective on him this way is really nice. So thank you. And I look forward to hearing the other episodes.
1: Well, thank you. And
0: watching some more of his film.
1: That's the key thing. I want people to find out about these films that I really didn't know about until I started doing this dive. You, you didn't know about these other films. And now, hopefully, exactly. people like yourself that love watching movies, and I think most of the people listening to this podcast like watching movies Go out there. Try it. I mean, they're different yeah. types. Enjoy it. But, Nick, we've reached the end of our journey with the man in the iron mask. And, listeners, well, I want to thank you all for listening. And join us next week where we we'll are either be doing a movie review decided by the roll of a die, an interview, or it could be the last episode of the James Earl Retrospective Series with the roundtable part. But, as always, have a good day, be safe, and do something fun. Go on YouTube. Watch The Man in the Iron Mask. We both like
0: it. For sure. For sure. It is a fun film, and hey, it doesn't cost you anything. Ciao, man.
1: Hello, everybody. I want to thank everybody again for listening to the episode, and I want to thank Nick Brown for joining me to talk about The Man in the Iron Mask. As we end the first ten movies of the James Earl Retrospective Series, the next episode for the series that will be coming up will be the roundtable, and then we have two Bonus movies that we'll be doing. The Road Back and Wives Under Suspicion. Um, so they'll be coming down in the future. So you'll get a little bit more James Whale, which is always a good thing for me. I hope everybody's been enjoying the series so far. And as we're approaching episode 100, we're not that far away. Um, please feel free to send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. And let us know what's been your favorite episode these first 100 Episodes, as it you know, has it been an interview, a movie discussion? Um, just let us know which ones have been floating your boat, and that we'll be can you know share some of that feedback in the episode. Also, I just want to let everybody know that I was recently on Monster Kid Radio with Derek M. Cook, the Grand Poobah, so to speak, and we talked about the people, and um, so that's out there. If you want to listen to that too, um, Derek helped. Alistair and I out. Basically, when we subbed for him for a few weeks, we started those Hammer movies over there. So we did a couple Hammer movies, which gave um, Alistair and I, or Al and I, the idea of doing Hammerama. And um, you're going to be hearing the promo for it. But we had two episodes of Hammerama out with Dracula slash Horror of Dracula and Quatermass in the Pit. Our next episode for Hammerama is going to be One Million Years B.C., so I hope everybody's listening to that and enjoying it. And again, leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Everybody have a good day enjoy themselves. And now on to the Hammerama promo. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast movie podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month we will throw a die to decide which
0: category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, Science Fiction, Prehistory, or the
1: Experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise.
0: So join us for
1: our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together
0: from both
1: ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.